0: how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at DavidPorson.org. This is Micah. Micah, then, is one of the tall, twelve small books at the end of the Old Testament that we refer to as minor as opposed to the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. But his message is memorable and some of the things he said in just these few pages are quoted around the world. One passage in particular is identical to a passage in Isaiah. Micah 4 and Isaiah 2 are word for word the same. Now they were contemporaries. It's all about beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war and more. You know, come to pass in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established and the nations will come to it. It's identical word for word. So who got it from who? Did uh, Micah copy it from Isaiah? Did Isaiah copy it from Micah? Or did they both get it from somebody else? Or did the Holy Spirit give them identical wording? I don't know. They were contemporaries however, they were speaking to the same situation so it really doesn't matter. Clearly this is a very important word of God for the people since it came through two witnesses at the same time in the same place. And then there's a passage which you've heard read every carol service you've ever attended, and you Bethlehem of Judea art not least among the princes of Judah. out of you shall come a ruler. You know the Bethlehem prediction, incidentally made 700 years before Jesus was born. Isn't it amazing? And was only fulfilled because of a poll tax. So if ever you object to the poll tax, remember that it was a poll tax ordered by Augustus Caesar that actually ensured that this prediction about Bethlehem came true, because that's what took Joseph and Mary there from Nazareth. And then the most classic verse one that I just love. It's got something so profound about it, so simple. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? That's all that God asks, but what a beautiful statement that is, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. A wonderful statement. And then there's a statement right at the end that's been made into a number of hymns, who is a pardoning God like you? Well, these are all memorable, but they're usually taken out of context and used as texts. These chapter and verse numbers are naughty, aren't they? Because put back into their setting, they take on quite a different meaning and significance. Now we must not only put individual verses back in their context, we must put the whole book into context, into time and place, because history and geography are very important to the Bible. God always addressed his word at a particular time and to a particular place and that's why the Bible, unlike all other holy books in the world, is full of history and geography. You can read the Quran or the Holy Vedas in India and you'll find they're just books of thoughts and words but the Bible is a book of history and geography because God unfolded his total revelation at particular times and particular places and this is very important for Micah. Let's just ask where and if you could take a big knife and cut a slice east to west across the Promised Land, you get a very interesting profile. The Promised Land is a very narrow strip, between the Mediterranean on the one hand and the Arabian desert on the other. And so it's a corridor through which all the traffic from Europe, Asia and Africa has to pass. But it usually passes down the coast. There's a road called the Way of the Sea which goes down the coast and the whole traffic of the world goes down that. In fact, the crossroads of the world is just north of here. The road from Europe to Arabia crosses the road from Asia to Africa sorry, which way around am I? Europe to Arabia and Asia to Africa. The crossroads is at Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo in Hebrew is har and it, that is the crossroads of the world. All the world's traffic passed through it and there's a little village on a hill overlooking the crossroads called Nazareth. That's why the northern part of Israel was called Galilee of the Nations because international traffic went through it. In the southern part up in the hills, that was terribly Jewish because no international traffic went through. Jerusalem is isolated up in them, their hills. So all the traffic passed by, but in the north the crossroads was like an international airport lounge and you could watch the world go by. That's why all the tax collectors were up in the north incidentally. Now let's look at the cross-section in the south if you take Jerusalem and just cut a line straight through on a level with Jerusalem, you find this profile. There's the Mediterranean Sea at one side and the Dead Sea at the other. Notice the Dead Sea is a good deal lower than the Mediterranean. The Israelis are now planning to dig a tunnel through here and bring fresh water into the Dead Sea, and it would just flow through. But uh, those two seas bracket this corridor of land, which is in three parts. There's a flat part here and the Hebrew word for flat is Sharon, so that's why it's called the Plain of Sharon. I know it's a lovely girl's name, but it means flat. (laughs) (laughs) And so we've got this flat area, the plain, the Sharon, with sand dunes at the edge, Tel Aviv is built on that sand and then the way of the sea, the road ran just this side of the sand dunes on the nearest hard bit of land on the flat area. Then we have a section of low hills, a kind of platform about a thousand feet high, quite low hills and the Hebrews called it the Shephelah and it was just low hills. And then you have the true mountains of Judea which rise much higher and Jerusalem is not on the top of a mountain, it's in a hollow surrounded by mountains. The pagans always put their high places of worship on the very top of a mountain so they could worship the stars, but God wanted his temple built so that people worshipping could see the mountains and the stars and could worship the God who made the heavens and the earth. It was very important for them to have hills around them. Many of the psalms talk about the hills around Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is, as someone has said, like a nightlight sitting in a saucer. It's in a lovely little hollow surrounded by mountains. And then you have this very steep, desolate area, the wilderness of Judea, which gets no rain because all the rain has to come from that direction and it doesn't fall here. So this side of the Judean hills is just absolute desert and wilderness. So actually you can be in the wilderness of Judea, ten minutes walk from Jerusalem. It's not far away when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it's just down the hill. And then right down here was Jericho. Now the key is that Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries. They were preaching at the same time, but Isaiah was born in the royal palace. He was a cousin to the king, Uzziah, and he was uh, right in with the government. He was a real statesman and he could speak to kings, whereas Micah lived down here in the Shephelah. And this was a kind of thousand foot high platform from which you could look up to Jerusalem and down to the Gaza Strip. The Philistines lived on the flat plain here, Gath was just on this, the inner edge of the flat plain. And so this area was the area of conflict between the Jews and their enemies. All their enemies went up and down the road here. And occasionally if they wanted to attack Jerusalem, they had to come up through the Shephelah to Jerusalem. Samson lived in the Shephelah. That's why he was so often involved with the Philistines down here. So this was the kind of battlefield between the international highway down on the plain and the very Jewish area up on the top of the mountains. Can you see it? Uh, Furthermore, this area was pretty poor. The wealth was concentrated at the capital up here. So Isaiah came from an upper-class, wealthy background. Micah was a simple countryman and his heart was with the ordinary people, especially the poor people. And therefore he was very conscious of social injustice, very conscious of people who were being exploited, the weak and the poor. Isaiah not so conscious of that. His background uh, was quite different. And they complement each other. Very neatly. But their message, as I've said, is often an identical message. Same time, same place, same people. But from a very different viewpoint simple countrymen and an upper class courtier from the palace. And that background comes out in their writings very much. When did he uh, speak? Well, it would be about the year 735 BC when there was a bad king on the throne, King Ahaz just before the good king Hezekiah and it may well be that one of the fruits of Micah's work and Isaiah's work was that Hezekiah, a good king, came and put things right. But during the reign of Ahaz, things were bad. You remember that by this time there had been civil war, the ten tribes in the north had hived off and called themselves Israel and the two tribes here in the south were called Judah. And at the same time as Isaiah and Micah were speaking to the two tribes in the south, a man called Hosea was speaking to the tribes in the north just before they finally disappeared and went off to Assyria. Now both Hosea and Isaiah were essentially town people and from fairly good backgrounds. So Micah is in contrast to both Hosea in the north and Isaiah in the south, a simple nobody, a countryman, but God can use them just as much as an Isaiah from the court of the king. Now why is he speaking? Well, this bad king Ahaz had led the country astray and I'm afraid sin was spreading from the north ten tribes to the south too. It was also spreading from the cities to the country. This is how sin spreads. It spreads from worse countries to better ones and it spreads from urban areas to rural areas. You see, in the Bible, cities are always bad things because cities concentrate people and therefore they concentrate sinners, therefore they concentrate sin. And vice and crime are worse in a city than the surrounding country usually. And the influence comes out of the city to the country. And the corruption that was happening up in Jerusalem was beginning to touch the towns in the country part in the Shephelah, and that's what was touching Micah. He saw the bad influence of the northern ten tribes affecting the southern two tribes, and he saw the bad influence of the city in the south affecting the country villages in the south, and that really hurt the man. He lists a whole lot of things and it's a horrible list of social injustice. There was bribery among the judges, even among the prophets and priests. They were being paid to say things that the people wanted to hear. There was exploitation of the powerless, covetousness, greed, cheating, violence, cruelty, crime was on the increase. Landlords were stealing from the poor, evicting widows and orphans and putting them out on the streets. Merchants and traders were using inaccurate scales and weights. So business was corrupt, sin was infiltrating every level of society. Above all, the rich and powerful were abusing the poor. Social and political power was being used for personal gain to line pockets. There were corrupt rulers, false prophets, ungodly priests and bribed judges. It's a sad picture, complete breakdown of respect and trust and above all, he says family relationships were just disintegrating. Again, it sounds strangely familiar, you know. It's time we reread these prophets and preach them because it's a message for our country. Micah had this passion for social justice. And the worst part of all this, it was happening inside God's people. Not in pagans. This was inside God's people, God's very city, and God's own country and so he had a vision of God coming down to deal with it and judging it and taking even their little bit of land in the south away from them. So that's his pain and it affected him very deeply. There were two factors which made him feel all this. One was the Holy Spirit and one was his own spirit. Uh, Where have I got to? Down here. I'll be coming back up to some of the other things. But the Holy Spirit gave him this burden and that in fact is the secret of all prophecy because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of prophecy and you'll find every prophet had a dynamic encounter with the Holy Spirit that led him to preach. But his human spirit also was feeling the pain and his description of it, he says, I howl like a jackal and cry like an ostrich and tear off my clothes. The prophets could weep, they could howl. That was their human reaction to what they saw. And uh, I know that that when the Holy Spirit gets hold of men, they can cry for the first time since they were boys and weep with God over a situation. Well, this was the man. He was desperately concerned about the familiar three problems with the people, idolatry, immorality and injustice. But it was the third one, injustice, that really was getting to his heart. He couldn't bear to see what God's people were doing to each other and it was a case of might is right. Idolatry is the way people insult God and worship something else. Immorality is the way people indulge themselves, but injustice is the way people injure each other. And this was the biggest burden in his heart, what people were doing to each other, what the rich were doing to the poor, what the powerful were doing to the weak. To see widows and orphans just thrown out on the street because they couldn't pay the rent, that's what got to him. And you have to be brought up among poor people, I think, to feel that. He was one of them and there's a terrific cry for social justice through his uh, prophecy. Sin was spreading from the north to the south, from the city to the country, I've already been through that and I've told you that, so that's the background. He had a vision, however, which seemed to go out in ripples. His first vision was really for the tribe of Judah and then his vision went a bit further afield and he had a vision for the whole nation, even those ten tribes in the north, though they would now have nothing to do with the south. He had a vision for them too, concerned about them and before he's finished, his heart goes out to the whole world. Uh, I had a recent delightful experience of making a new friend in a man called Chris Lambrianu. Found myself in a radio studio in London with him, had never met him before. He was one of the Cray brothers' right-hand men, used to dispose of bodies for them. Do you remember the gang that ruled East London? And he did 15 years in jail, high security. At one point in solitary confinement in a cage inside a cell with his bedstead cemented to the floor. And yet Jesus met him in that cell and he was transformed and he began to weep for the whole world, not just his wasted life himself, but he began to weep for the entire world. He he was weeping over Vietnam at that time. His, His whole heart went round the whole world He's a remarkable man. I hope you meet him someday. Did you see him on television recently? Yes. An amazing story. But uh, that's what happened to Micah. His heart was just enlarged to carry the burdens of a lost world, though it started with a burden for his own people. Well now that's roughly the background, so let's look at a kind of outline. I always find it helpful to see the structure of a book, to see its shape especially if it's uh, well-ordered, and Micah is. It's really quite um, a clear structure. It's in three quite distinct parts. I've given them different titles to try and help you to see the main thrust of each part. Chapters 1 to 3 simply talk about crime and punishment, the bad things that are happening which God is going to punish. And then we get an extraordinary change of mood and theme in chapters 4 to 5, Peace and security. Quite a different picture. But he is now looking far ahead into the ultimate future. The immediate future is bad news, but the ultimate future is good news. It's always the case with prophecy that the short outlook is bad, but the longer outlook is good. God must show justice first, and then later he can show mercy that's the theme of Micah. And it goes all the way through. Justice is the first thing, mercy is the second. And he's going to say, and that's what we're to be like, to do justly and to show mercy. See? And this is the whole thrust of Micah, therefore the first part is on God's justice. He must punish what's being done, but then he moves forward to the mercy of God in the later part and he sums it all up in the last section. So I've given the titles Crime and Punishment to chapters 1 to 3, Peace and Security to chapters 4 to 5, and then Justice and Mercy to chapters 6 to 7. Let's just explore these chapters in a little more detail. He is trying to say sin has now spread even to the country villages and towns in the Shephelah from the big city up in the hills. And in a very clever way, he pronounces judgment on them by using the name of each village in a way that they would never forget his message. Let me try and do it. Supposing Micah was preaching in London, he would say something like this, Hackney will be hacked to pieces, Hammersmith will be hammered flat, Battersea will be battered for all to see, and Shoreditch will be thrown in a ditch near the shore. Crouch end will crouch with fear at the end and there will be no healing for healing Harrow will find itself under a harrow and church end will see the end of the church. Barking will be set on by wild dogs and sheep will graze over what's left in shepherd's bush. Vultures will feed on the corpses at Peckham. Now you've, you've found that a bit of a joke, but actually that's exactly how Micah speaks and he takes every village name in the Shephelah and he twists that name to be a message of judgment. Now can you imagine them ever forgetting that? No. And if you lived in Shoreditch or Peckham, you will not forget what I just said. <laughs> do, do you see what I mean? It was a brilliant bit of preaching and he just took those names and he made them a message of judgment and said, God won't let you get away with it. Sooner or later he will do something about it. I'll never forget one thing Billy Graham once said years ago in Wembley. I I shivered when he said it. It was a real prophetic word. He said, if God does nothing about London, he will have to apologise to Sodom and Gomorrah. Boy, what a word! Never forget that word. But he was saying God deals with towns and cities and villages where these bad things spread and where the poor suffer and the helpless are exploited. Well, those are the places he spoke to and the people he held responsible for this were the profiteers, those whose sole ambition was to make money. Very interesting how simply it meant that the rich got richer and the poor got poorer, as simple as that. And if we share Micah's sensitivity, we'll have the same reaction to that happening. So uh, that, in summary, is the message of the first part. Let's move on to the second part. Here comes the big surprise, it's mostly good news. Even though chapter 3 ends with Jerusalem in ruins, he says the big city where it's all coming from will be just laid waste. But in chapters 4 and 5 we have a totally different picture. He's saying the present corrupt state is not the end of the story. There's something else going to happen and he talks first about a kingdom coming in which there will be multilateral disarmament in which all disputes will be settled by a king in Zion. I think I've told some of you before that I went to United Nations and looked round the building in New York very smartly dressed young lady showed us round said, this is the Security Council, this is the General Assembly Chamber and these are the committee rooms and these are the works of art that people have given. She had showed us outside a block of granite on which was written half a verse from Micah. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks and so on. And we got to the end of the tour after two and a half hours and she said, well, ladies and gentlemen, have a nice day. And I said, but you haven't shown us one room. And she said, uh, what room is that? And I told her, she said, no, you can't see that, it's not open to the public. I said, but i that's the one room I wanted to see, I've come a long way to see that room. I tried the old lark, I've come all the way from little old England, you know. That usually gets under their skin, but uh, she didn't give way. And uh, she said, you'll have to go and ask the guards at the entrance. And I went to the reception hall, I said to a man with a gun, uh, could you please let me see this room? No, he said, it's, uh, it's closed to the public. I said, well, I really want to see it, I've heard about it and I I can't believe what I've heard and I want to see for myself. He said, how long would you be in the room? I said, two minutes. All right, he said, I'll let you in. He got a key and he opened the door. He took me into the prayer room of the United Nations to see the God they pray to for peace. It's a block of cast iron about the size and shape of a coffin painted black and all round are stools and mats and you kneel down and you pray to this block of cast iron. For world peace. I wanted to be sick. I'd heard of it. I couldn't believe it that such a thing could be, but I've seen it with my own eyes. They've built that building in the wrong city, you know, it should be in Jerusalem. That's going to be the headquarters of the United Nations. That's where disputes will be settled because that half verse on the block of granite outside, as an elective, the first half of the verse which is, when the Lord reigns in Zion, he will settle the disputes of Northern Ireland and Bosnia. And all disputes so that they can disarm. And we won't have to spend money on tanks and guns, but on food and clothes. It's going to happen, you know. Micah said it would happen. Isaiah said it would happen. Yet I meet Christians who just don't believe it's going to happen. But it is. The kingdom is going to be established on earth. And every day you pray for it, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And of course it can't come until the king comes because you can't have a kingdom without a king. And Micah went on to say the king's going to come from Bethlehem. Little village, Bethlehem, it means house of bread. beit is house and Lehem is bread, lehem, house of bread because that little village supplied corn to Jerusalem, the big city. It also supplied something else. In Bethlehem there were many shepherds but they didn't kill the sheep for meat, they supplied lambs for sacrifice in Jerusalem, hundreds of them, and it was from Bethlehem that the sacrificial lamb of God would come, who would be the king and the ruler. Of course Micah is looking way ahead, not just to Jesus' first coming but to his second. This description is his second coming when he comes to reign on earth and he will be king over the nations. So the second part of Micah is good news, all of it. The city of David, Bethlehem would supply the king who would come to rule the world and bring peace and prosperity. And so we come to the last section of Micah, which is in in the form of a court scene. You imagine yourself in a big courtroom and the people of God are in the dock And God is the counsel for the prosecution and Micah is the counsel for the defence. It's a fascinating scene, but it's all painted as if it's in a huge courtroom. And here are God's people now corrupted by sin standing in the dock. And God is vindicating himself. God speaks in the personal pronoun I and so does Micah. And they have an argument about who's in the dock. Fascinating. And God justifies his judgment and says, I'm right to judge this people. And then he makes that classic statement that what God really wanted from them was not sacrifices, not the blood of thousands of lambs. God was not interested in ritual, but righteousness. And then God says, this is what's required, to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly. That's all. And that's what God couldn't find. Now you know what justice is, and you know what mercy is. Justice is to give people what they don't deserve, what they do deserve, but mercy is to give them what they don't deserve. Like the man getting his portrait painted, and he said to the artist, I hope this will do me justice. And the artist said, It's not justice you need, it's mercy. (laughs) And so when you see a photograph of yourself, or when I see myself on a video, I say, Well, it doesn't really do me justice, it probably does me (laughs) mercy. Well that's the difference. Justice and mercy are not contradictory, they travel the same road together. The difference is that justice can only go so far, mercy takes over and goes further. Justice gives you what you deserve, but mercy gives you what you don't deserve. And God is the supreme master of both. God will always do justly, he will give everybody what they justly deserve. No one will ever be able to say God's unfair, but thank God he goes beyond justice, gives people what they don't deserve mercy out of sheer love. Well now, that's what God was looking for and he didn't get it. He got blood of thousands of lambs, they kept up the ritual, they kept up the religious side, but God was looking for more than that. Somebody has said this, it sums it up beautifully, the one thing that matters is how men stand with God and the one test of that is how they stand with men. Let me repeat that. One thing that matters is how men stand with God. And the one test of that is how they stand with men. In other words, your relationships with other people reflect your relationship with God. If you have found God truly and you know Him, then you will find yourself acting justly and showing mercy. Because that's exactly how you found Him. Do you follow? And that's why God looks for that outworking in our relationships horizontally with other people that reflects the relationship we found with him, because frankly we're jolly glad that God goes beyond justice. If God only dealt with us justly and if he only gave us what we deserve, none of us would be here this morning, but he's gone beyond that and given us what we don't deserve. It's this whole question of justice or mercy. Micah is pretty miserable in the court scene and then his misery gives way to rejoicing when he realises that the judge in the courtroom is going to show mercy as well as do justly and mercy is to be pardoned, to be forgiven and he bursts out with, who is a pardoning God like you? Forgiveness is a miracle, isn't it? That God should say, I'm going to forgive that. I'm going to pardon you, even though we're guilty. So we get this lovely balance at the end of the book in the covenant that God makes, which is a covenant of mercy, and God will do justice and show mercy in the courtroom for his people. Now here we have one of the great tensions when we get to know God, because for us – there is always a tension between justice and mercy. It comes out when you have to punish your children. To spank or not to spank, that is the question. Whenever a child is naughty, a parent has a problem. Are you going to show them justice and give them what they deserve, or are you going to show mercy and forgive them? And you try and balance the two, but it's a very difficult balance to get. To do both at once is very hard. In fact, I'm going to dare to say that for God it's very hard. To be just and merciful, except under one circumstance and one only, and that is where an innocent person is prepared to suffer the justice on behalf of the guilty. And then God can do both, He can punish and pardon at the same time. If an innocent person is willing to take the punishment, the guilty can be given the pardon. And that's why the cross was necessary. Do you know the hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, I Fain Would Take My Stand? There's a verse missed out of it today, which is unfortunate, it's a beautiful verse. It sings this about the cross. O safe and happy shelter, O refuge tried and sweet, O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. And at the cross you see God's perfect justice, the death penalty for sin, is exacted. And you also at the cross see God's perfect mercy that the innocent can go free, the guilty can go free because the innocent has paid the price. That's why the cross was necessary. People think that a God of love could forgive us without the cross. No, he couldn't. If God forgave us without the cross, then frankly he would be merciful but not just. If he refused to forgive sin at all and punished it all, he would be just but he wouldn't be merciful. That is why all through the Old Testament he insisted that no Israelite could have forgiveness for a sin unless first there was a sacrifice of an innocent life, that without shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sin. Because if there's no shedding of blood, then God cannot be both just and merciful. If you read Romans 3, you'll find it clearly stated that at the cross we can see that God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus, that he is both just and merciful and can only be that because an innocent Jesus was willing to take the justice so we could have the mercy. And it's Micah's focusing on these two things, the justice and mercy of God, that really prepares our thinking for the cross later. And if we have received that combination of justice and mercy in the cross, it will show in our lives we also will become people who act justly and who show mercy and who walk humbly. That third one is just as important as the other two. It's possible to do the first two and feel proud, but you're only doing it because God first did it for you and you walk humbly with him. The New Testament uses the prophet Micah, of course. It picks up the prediction that a ruler would come from Bethlehem, and picks that up and shows how it was filled, fulfilled by a decision made by the Roman Emperor in his palace in Rome, thousands of miles away or hundreds of miles away. He said, let's have a poll tax and that decision brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem and Jesus was born. But also that belief that when that king and ruler comes, he will take over world government and bring peace to the whole world. That has yet to be fulfilled, but it will be when Christ comes again. See, there are so many prophecies of what would happen when the Messiah came that did not happen when Jesus came. And this is the great offence to the Jewish people. They said the Messiah was going to rule the world. He was going to bring worldwide peace and Jesus didn't do that, so he can't be the Messiah. That's the way they argue because there was a secret that was hidden from all the prophets of the Old Testament that was only revealed in the New and that was that the Messiah would come twice, first to die for our sins and second to take the world over. Meanwhile, Christians who have discovered salvation in Christ will have the same kind of social conscience that Micah had. See, there are some people who say that all our job is is to win souls and get them off the Titanic into our lifeboat before the whole world sinks. No, there's more than that. Social action is part of the church's mission. If we have the sensitivity of the Old Testament prophets, it's not just getting sinners saved, but doing what we can to relieve the injustices of society. Some of my meetings in South Africa were cancelled and I was accused of being a communist in 1982 because of just one sentence I said, which was, a God of righteousness is as concerned about injustice as he is about immorality. See, our political problem is that right-wing politicians are concerned about immorality and left-wing politicians are concerned about injustice. And God is concerned about both because righteousness covers everything that's wrong in God's sight. Praise God for people like Micah. There are Micahs today who raise their voices on behalf of the weak and the exploited and who say God is angry about this. May we have our share in doing the same. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidporson.org.